You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. While serving in the U.S. Coast Guard, Chris Young was paralyzed in a plane crash in Alaska. He began adaptive skiing in 1986, and it was named to the U.S. Disabled Ski Team a few years later. At the 1994 Winter Paralympics, Young won a gold medal in slalom. He would win another gold medal at the 2002 Winter Paralympic Games in Super G. Among as many other titles and wins, he won the X Games in 2015 in ski. Young has also gone on to coach a number of other adaptive athletes and Paralympians, and just last week was inducted into the Adaptive Sports Hall of Fame. So let's chat with him. So Chris, I thought before uh, we talked in, the, in great detail about uh, the sport of alpine skiing, I'd, I'd just be interested in how you got involved with, with it to begin with. Well, my introduction was a couple of years after my injury. So in 1985, at the first Disabled Veterans Winter Sports Clinic, I was introduced to sit-skiing. Before the monoski was invented, before suspension, we sat right on the snow on a sit-ski. It was kind of like a toboggan with an illusion of control. <laughs> yeah, so the sport has, has changed a little bit, obviously. <laughs> oh, my goodness, it sure has. But the racing part of the sport hasn't changed one little bit. People are still training hard and seeking out um, better equipment every single day and hoping to go faster and faster and win more and more. And what do you think it is? Well, I'll ask you personally, what was it about the sport that, you know, just caught your attention and drew you in? Well, um, coming from the Coast Guard and the airplane crash and paralysis, and like a, a lot of folks, I'm sure, um, but certainly for myself, I was quite angry about not being able to run anymore. And it gave it, alpine skiing, gave me back that wind in my hair. It really, truly gave me speed, but in a way that's not the same as, say, riding a bike and going really fast downhill or on the court and playing basketball or one of the other sports, which are all kind of fantastic. But alpine skiing is gravity-powered, and the amount of speed you go is the amount of speed you're willing to go. And then, of course, there are consequences for that if you make a mistake. Yes, there are consequences if you make a mistake. <laughs> and and so uh, when did you learn that you wanted to, you know, take it more seriously and, and, um, and ultimately compete in it. And when, what was it that, that triggered the, this is something, you know, to do just for fun versus, versus I want to, I want to go and compete at the highest level, uh, with this sport. <laughs> so the first winter sports clinic was a bit of an experiment. So not an official one. And it was up at Alpine Meadows in Tahoe in California. And there were, I think there were about 10 of us veterans that came out of the Palo Alto VA. And we, um, we showed up on Monday 
and skied not every day. It was a very similar model to today's winter sports clinic where you got a morning and then you got an afternoon on the next day. And then the next day was morning and then an afternoon. And I learned on Monday and I went in my first race on Saturday. So I really didn't waste any time finding the speed of the sport, but also the direction of the sport and the discipline um, that I'd been craving to return to after military service of just kind of lost. And it gave me, okay, here's a place to focus. And that place to focus was the top of the podium. And boy, and 40, oh my goodness, 46 years later of ski racing career, um, every single day I worked harder and harder to try to get better and better. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd at least be remiss without asking you a little bit about, you know, to talk to a little bit about your competitive career because you had an amazing competitive career. So let's let's chat about that and tell me a little bit about that before we kind of go into the specific mechanics of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, There are no races that I didn't win at least once, and most of them I won more than twice. Um, I've got 159 wins underneath my belt, and I was actually trying to add those up, and it kind of doesn't add up in that I might be lowballing myself. Um, there are just so many back there that it's hard to remember, and a lot of not a good documentation of it. Um, mm -hmm. I was digging through some things recently and found a picture of myself on the U.S. ski team in 1987 when I was first invited to become a member. And uh, after that, it was, uh, oh, my goodness, you know, try to get yourself to a point where you could race internationally and then try to keep yourself at a point you could race internationally. And and then, like a lot of ski racers, it was get myself rehabbed from a pretty serious injury from making one of those consequential mistakes mm -hmm. and return to that podium again. And uh, I'm a world champion and a Paralympic champion and a U.S. national champion and a Canadian national champion and a North American Cup Series champion and an X Games champion. Uh, skied Corbett's Coulard before um, anybody else and uh, done a snowboard before snowboarding in Sitskis was a thing. And a few people have done it and played with it since. And uh, I've also a world champion synchronized skiing. I joined the, um, oh goodness, silver. Oh gosh, it's north of Winter Park there. I cannot remember. It's, they've changed their name so many times. Little ski area. We joined the ski school there myself and another adaptive skier and it competed in the synchronized skiing championships. And now that synchronized skiing championships is called Interski and the development team from PSIA goes and travels around the world to compete in that. Um, but uh, in the very beginning, it was just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I have to say, I've not seen synchronized skiing <laughs> myself, so I'll have to look that up. <laughs> it's pretty pretty darn fun and quite difficult um you know it it looks a little frilly but um it's quite difficult to match that turn so perfect that the, when the judge's eye looks at it they think oh okay those guys are doing the exact same thing at the exact same time yeah 
Yeah. It's so much more difficult than ski racing when you get to do it all by yourself. It's just you and the clock. Right. Yeah. Synchronizing with somebody else is not easy. And, and a slight off, you know, uh, a judge can typically notice that. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, you bet. And so you've, you've, all of this knowledge and expertise and skills that you've brought, you brought as a competitor, you know, I know that you've done, you've transitioned to some coaching. Um, was that naturally for you? Was that natural for you or, you know, learning the, the, the skill sets that a coach needs? Was that, was that a different challenge for you? Uh, I believe it was a quite a natural switch for me or not a natural switch, but, a a progression for my skiing to, to, if I could, teach somebody the nuances and the um the fine tuning of racing and a and a perfect turn that I was working on and then I understood it better myself and I started that early in my racing career by teaching clinics for instructors I uh, used to travel out to the early days of Challenge Aspen and uh, out to Tahoe um to Alpine Meadows and, and a few other places and teach instructors in a clinic setting um, about what I was doing and what I was working on and officially became a coach of Alpine ski racing when I moved to the East Coast in New Hampshire with the New England Disabled Ski Team at Lou. And that was in 1998, I believe. Yeah, and you've, you've had some, uh, some pretty good Paralympians that you've coached as well. Oh, dear goodness. Yes, I was blessed as a coach to have a couple of uh, Paralympians that were destined to greatness long before I met them. I just got lucky and was there in the beginning to help them along their way. And so as you you know, interact with, you know, maybe uh, uh, an individual with a disability who has not tried alpine skiing, how do you how do you coax them? How do you encourage them to try the sport? Yeah, it is. You're right. You do kind of have to coax somebody to get out there. That the movement, and I didn't get it because I was sitting directly on the snow. I didn't get the go-kart factor, the instant speed, the not the wind in your hair, because you get that later, but there's a fear factor. You're going so fast from your normal life. Mm -hmm. And and you're going like speeds of a car, but you don't have a seatbelt on per se. You don't have a car wrapped around you. And so it's like a go-kart. You're right up against the snow and you're moving pretty fast. And I'm talking about sit skiers and stand-up skiers and amputees and and three trackers and four trackers, um, some of the arm amps and and people with visual impairments. They all deal with that movement. Mm -hmm. It's so much faster than your daily life that some people recognize that's about to happen and you've got to coax them into those first turns. And and I borrow a lot from some of the PSIA progressions about how to teach a beginner um, and how right at the very beginning, let's put the equipment on and on a nice flat spot that's not going to move and check this stuff out and like on the carpet somewhere. <laughs> and, and then let's go out and slide around on the snow on the flats here. And then maybe we'll scoot over here and, you know, get a little tiny bit of momentum. And, and quite quickly, most folks, um, most folks definitely take to it. I've got one 
person in all of my years of doing this that was a 100% abject failure on my part to convince them that alpine skiing was going to be in their in their wheelhouse. I just, I was not able to do it. <laughs> no matter what you did, it just didn't work. Yeah, yeah. One person, they they were not having it. And and so what does a person who's never, never, I mean, this, let's say someone that's coming out to the ski spec for the very first time, what is what does that person need to know in order you know before they before he she they even get out on the on the slopes well ski specs such a wonderful introductory event for somebody that's never been on the snow because everybody's there everybody in the industry of alpine and nordic and snowboarding adaptives sliding on snow is there. Uh, instructors and racers and students and skiers and riders, everybody that slides on snow is there. So the thing that a new person might take with them is an open mind like you would to any brand new thing and a list of questions a list of questions that you could ask anybody, anybody at all in the hall or out on the snow, and they're all going to have answers. And maybe you should ask a lot of people and get all those answers from a lot of different places. And, um, you know, answer questions like, what, what am I going to experience? Um, how do I ski? How do I ride? How do I get on one of these snow bikes? How do I do you know, I can't see. And so how am I supposed to be able to do this? Well, we've got a plan in place and we're going to take you out and, and we've got pros that are going to be able to help you and walk you through safely, walk you through how to slide on the snow, including getting on and off the chairlift, which sometimes is one of the hardest parts. <laughs> I think sometimes it is. It is the hardest part. <laughs> and and let's dive a little deeper in terms of like the basics. Um, in terms of equipment, you know, I know when they when a, an individual comes to a program or comes to ski spec or comes to, you know, uh, any 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 adaptive sports program, the, the equipment's typically there and provided at least for them to to use and to try. But what do they need to come with? I mean, obviously, basic winter gear. Um, what are other things that they need to come 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 prepared with? Yeah, it's it's time to own your own helmet. Um, we'll start right there. The, the biggest safety piece of gear that you could possibly think of to wear. And then from there, you might want to own some winter gear and better winter gear, better ski gear that's specific to skiing is going to suit you many, many years down the road. You're going to be able to amortize the cost of that over the next 10 years. This stuff is going to be super good. And good socks, definitely. <laughs> um, hand warmers, you know, if you get cold, those little hand warmer packs are pretty fantastic at, at keeping you warm. And a little trick that my wife, Keja, taught me is to put a little hand warmer pack at the base of your neck, underneath your collar in the back. And it just supplies a really comfortable warmth that, uh, that helps your core, or at least at least tricks your core into thinking you're much warmer than you are. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and, and then how do you, um, you know, obviously this, this de will depend on the disability, but how do you um, size someone up and make sure that they have 
whatever that equipment might be, the, the right piece of equipment. So at ski spec, and, and if you were to go to any mountain that had an adaptive ski school, um, whether it be Nordic or snowboard, um, alpine skiing, the, the instructors there and the staff there, they're going to be able to help you size your body to fit the equipment that's appropriate for you, whether it be a bi-ski or whether it be a snow slider or a monoski, all the different things. Um, I think with the invention of the Tetris ski from the University of Utah, there's almost nobody that can't ski. Um, it's, it's kind of an amazing sport. There, if you can get to the mountain, we can figure out how to get you in the right equipment and get you on the hill safely and slide down the snow. <laughs> and then as a, as an instructor or a coach, um, well, once they have the right piece of equipment, I know you talked about some of the progressions that, that you do, but, um, what does it take to get someone out on the slopes for the first time? So that very first time and first touch is you're you're going to want to definitely give yourself the benefit of the doubt as the skier or as the rider. Um, you're learning something brand new, something that's that quite a few folks, every single ski instructor works on for their whole life and tries to get better at. So. You know, in the first five minutes, if you're not making turns and it's not perfect, it's okay to give yourself a break and say, "Okay, I'm I'm still learning." And and even though I might have not been super successful in the first ten minutes, uh, you know, I'm going to keep at this. So, you know, once you once that equipment gets you out on the hill, they're going to they the instructors are going to choose some appropriate terrain and the, something that's nice and safe and friendly for the first few tar first few turns. And, and I skied with a young gentleman, um, last year and his, his need for, um, gentle beginner terrain lasted one month. And, and then he was on the chairlift and, and up, not the top of the mountain, but certainly up, that section of the mountain that we were working on and, uh, you know, a couple of falls here and there and, and he started to get it. And, and for him, it was, it was kind of like you do when you go to the movies and when you suspend belief you say, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to get entertained. I don't have to believe what's happening in this movie. I'm just going to be entertained. Well, don't suspend belief when you go skiing because you want to believe in the people and the equipment that are going to be helping you out and working with you. But but don't walk into it or don't roll into it or don't stroll into it or hop or whatever, however you get there, um, with any expectations or go with goals. Uh, but don't go with any expectations of, of a certain type of experience. And, and let that experience happen for the first time. Like you were a four-year-old that is exploring the vacuum for the very first time in their life and finds out that, whoa, I stuck my whole hand in there if I'm not careful. Um, it's a, uh, you know, it out on the snow, it's such a magical place in the mountains. Wintertime is so beautiful. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's home for me, that's for sure. And it's home for thousands and thousands of other people all around the world. Yeah, and I, I want to actually 
go back to that because I know that you mentioned that, you know, part of it's the wind in your hair, but what else makes skiing a magical activity and a magical sport? Well, the, as an adaptive skier, my mastery over the mountain it, through the equipment into the snow ski, which is the exact same snow ski anybody else on the mountain might use. And my ability to make that snow ski carve the way the engineer in the ski manufacturer decided this is how this thing should work. And the ability to be able to do that. And when you get to that point and you can do that, you know, you're doing it while you're doing it. And the, the euphoria, the high of being able to do that is uh, there's not very many parallels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, other than dealing with the cold, which you, you know, someone have to embrace, you know, you're outside and you're in, you're in nature and you're getting clean, clean oxygen and you're, you're taking in, you know, wonderful breaths of clean air and all that, all the other wonderful things that, that allows you to, to enjoy being, being part of that activity. Yeah. No matter where you grew up, uh, the mountains are a special place and they're, you know, the health benefits of being in the mountains have, have been known by people's Ever since the beginning of peoples, um, everybody knows that the mountain air is good for you. And you mentioned that, of course, you know, not to, not to give up essentially after the first time, because I don't even when I went on the slopes, I didn't pick it up right away. So, but that's true with anything. If you don't pick it up right away, just, you know, don't, if you don't get, if you don't pick it up on the first time, don't just call it quits. It does take a little bit of time sometimes to, to, not, not only master that obviously, but but to just even pick it up and and to to get to a point where you're enjoying yourself. Well, you're right, Sean. <laughs> and let's say someone is you know has getting or has gotten to a point where you know they realize like you did, I I can be pretty good at this. Yeah, I you know maybe I maybe I want to take this beyond just a recreational sport. What do you recommend they do? Well, if somebody decides they want to become competitive, it is research. It should be your first step. Dive onto the internet, watch competitive alpine skiing or snowboarding or Nordic. Um, watch it because of YouTube. You can find all kinds of stuff. You go to the International Paralympic Committee and you can find all kinds of information. Um, visually impaired, listen to it. I mean, um, you know, put on the uh, um, the teletype or, or uh, you know, the voiceover and, and listen to what's going on. The, and that research should never stop. You should you should always be trying to find something better um, for yourself. It's time to go find a coach. Uh, mm -hmm. And that coach doesn't have to be a coach that works with somebody with a disability because ski racing is a start, a whole bunch of turns and a finish. Mm -hmm. And we use the exact same hills as our able-bodied counterparts. Folks with no disability use the same hill as us adaptive skiers. Um, case in point, the, the super G that, uh, that I was a world champion 
at Incestriere Italy was the exact same course that Bodie Miller won the Super G on when he was there. So, and Darren Rawls won the downhill the day before. So it's the, the same course. The snow was different because it was a different day and it had snowed a little bit, but, but the mountain was the same. So, so a coach is where you want to go. So now a coach that works with adaptive athletes is going to have an edge and because they're already open-minded. Some coaches get stuck looking at a person's body and the way that they're mobile in their movements rather than the snow, the equipment and the contact of the snow. And and quite a few folks get over that pretty fast and some never get over it. Um, but but so, it's time it if you go to an adaptive program that has a race team, uh, that that place is gonna have other athletes. And there's gonna be one of your great research resources is other athletes and asking them questions. How did you do this? How do you do that? And where do I get one of those? And hey, what's that? Um, all of those things you're going to find from the community. And you'll be quite surprised as, as a community, we're quite open. Yeah, indeed. And, um, and then of course, if they, once they have a coach, it's just a matter of trying to find, you know, competition opportunities or, or training opportunities where they can, you know, hone in on their skills and get better and improve. Um, and, and then again, find competitions either at a, local, regional, national, and then ultimately an international level. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's one of the great things that a coach will be able to help you with is is line you up and get you to the right races so that you build your skill levels, so that you're not racing against maybe the best in the world on the first day um, and uh, give you a chance to you know, to dip your toe in or your finger or whatever part it is you have, dip it in the waters, the frozen waters of the snow and see if this is something you really want to do. And if you decide, yes, it is, it should become pretty much your whole life. And to be good at it, to be good at snowboarding and and the, the border cross or to be great at at Nordic and or say biathlon you need to train at least six days a week. Mm-hmm. And I say six days a week because it should be mandatory in every athlete's life of training to have one day off. Now, you can go play on that day off and maybe do the exact same thing you do to train on that day off, but you shouldn't train seven days a week. You should train six and then have one day off to just play and whether it's sit and read a book or finally get caught up on all that housework or whatever it is that that you need to do. Or maybe you're busy deep in writing a grant and trying to find funds to help you pay for all of this. It's uh, You need that time to, to shut off athlete and be human again. And uh, remember, life's pretty cool. And uh, it was pretty privileged to be in a place that you can call yourself a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that one day is, is critical not only physically so that your body can rest, but mentally, emotionally, and, and, and all of that as well. <laughs> yes, it is. 
And you talked a little bit about the the touch. You mentioned pieces of equipment, and so I'd like to um, spend a little bit of time talking about the different adaptations and the different pieces of equipment that the currently is out there in the in the sport. So, you know, maybe start with. Um, we'll start with the bi ski, and then and we can talk about the mono ski and the tetra ski and any other pieces of equipment that that you want to to bring up as well. But let's start uh, just by talking about the different adaptations and equipment that's out there. So, as far as I know, and this is my memory, and I was there to see it happen. The first bi ski oh. was invented by Rick Isom. And it may have been right around the exact same time that Mountain Man, so Bob, Bob, oh gosh, Darwin Vandegrift and Bob Pavlik of Mountain Man up in Montana, and before Milty, I don't know if it was around that exact same time, and Woody, um, Woody, um, Woody of, uh, of Enabling Technologies were making their first buy ski, but Rick Isom built a dual ski. And he made this mono ski to race on that sat on two snow skis that you had this huge crank in between your legs and a worm gear, not a worm gear, but like a all thread. And it raised you up high enough to get on the chairlift and then lowered you enough to get into the skiing position. And he made the most beautiful turns. We used to race at Powderhorn in Western Colorado. And they had a downhill race series there. And he made this beautiful arcing turn, two perfect railroad tracks in the snow, almost right into the trees. Um, Because it was too good. Uh, We didn't have the technology, or not the technology, but the skill level to be able to control that. Uh. Like we do today, uh, it ended up being a planter in Crested Butte at the adaptive uh, at the adaptive ski school there in Crested Butte. They stuck a plant in it in the in the hallway. <laughs> um, it, uh, but today's bi ski is um, there's a guy Jeff Scott up in Canada that runs Live It Love It Foundation, and he skis absolutely. Every bit of terrain that I can ski, and I'm a T12 incomplete and quite mobile, um, and uh, have been in some pretty hairy, gnarly terrain. And this guy on a bike ski skis that same terrain. So he's put the time and the effort in to become a great skier. And there's a gal, Sarah, out of Loon in New Hampshire. I believe she's Rhode Island, but. She became to a point where she was an independent bi-skier and where in a bi-ski, you're going to need some help getting on and off the lift. But when you're out on the hill, you can, you can grow to a point of becoming an independent skier. And, uh, you know, that bi-ski is that first stable platform that turns easy and get you down the mountain and it's close to the snow. So any kind of fall or consequence is kind of low. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you flip over, which I've seen happen, which is kind of weird, but <laughs> and then uh, you know, from the bi-ski is the monoski. And and the monoski has changed immensely since the very beginning. Um and back when Dan Fallon, who I think he makes beer taps now or something like that. He invented the Yeti monoskis before the Goodmans bought it. And uh, 
And then that was before, before, oh goodness, Peter Axelson built his first monoski. It was right around that same time. And then just shortly after that, Jim Martinson built a monoski and then Bob Hall built monoskis. And now the uh, Bill Grove, he built monoskis and all of these were great machines and they all got us better technique. And each year we got better in our technique. The manufacturers stepped up their game and got better in their ability to build machines. And the KBG and the and the Dynaxis are kind of some of the pinnacles of the sport. The Tessier out of France is mm-hmm. is pretty. These guys, these machines are getting quite amazing to the point that just recently Toyota Motorsports got into the monoski game and the monoskiers on the US ski team are using Toyota monoskis now. Mm-hmm. So that was a fun project to work on. <laughs> and then uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Tetra ski because if people are listening and aren't familiar with that, what, what, describe that for the listener. So the Tetra ski is a, um, so it would be similar to taking an electric wheelchair out on the snow. And, and through, through the mechanics of the rig, you're, you're able, if you can use a joystick to control your turns. So you choose when to turn just like every other skier or rider on the mountain. And it's not a Nordic ski. It's only an Alpine ski. And if you can't control it, there's a remote. And the and it can be can be controlled by pros that that uh, that are able to work it, um, you know, and have the right training and such. So so now you think about somebody listening might say, oh yeah, but look, you're a T twelve and you're incomplete, and so of course you can do this stuff. I'm a C four and and I've got such limited mobility that there's no way I can get out there. I'm like. If you can get to the mountain, we can get you out skiing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that was an amazing introduction um, and and opened the doors to a lot more individuals being able to enjoy the the snow. Chris, this has been great. Are there this, are there any questions or anything that I have not asked you that you want to want to share? Well, uh, you know, touch back towards racing and you know going the eyes wide open. It's expensive. For sure. And it's a lifelong pursuit. It should be a lifelong pursuit. If you're going to give it a try and, 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 you know, dip your toe in up proverbially, um, you can do it in one season and figure out right away where you stand. Um, but, but it's, it's a life altering, life affirming, way to become a professional athlete that I dare I say no other adaptive sport can can match. Um in the border cross courses, those guys and gals on the Alpine ski racing and and you know Nordic and and the the skill level and and fantastic athleticism that it takes to master the mountain. So now we're not saying that somebody who plays wheelchair basketball is not skilled. They're incredibly skilled, but they're mastering a basketball court. 
and, and it's not quite the same as a mountain. Um, and, and, you know, and here we are back to breathing that mountain air again. Uh, you'd be surprised how many breaths you can take in a couple of seconds up there. 